Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Randy Franz as he shares this week's message. Um, Jude was a half-brother of Jesus. It's a little surprising to me even that this, this little book is part of the official included in the official canon of scripture because Jude was like the Apostle Paul. He was not a believer in Jesus as the Messiah when Jesus was in his bodily pre-risen state, just like Paul was not. It was only after Jesus died, was crucified, resurrected, and ascended that Jude, who grew up with Jesus, It was only after that that he became a very strong adherent of Jesus as Christ, as the Messiah, the appointed Christ. And so that's why the beginning of this book, the beginning of the book of Jude starts this way. Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. He doesn't even label himself a brother of Jesus. If you or I were going to do this, we would write it differently. We would want that association. But he does not. He identifies himself not as Jesus' brother, so he would not have be seen as having maybe some insider track or some special revelation, maybe. Uh, but he calls himself a servant. He is acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, the appointed one. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Jude. I've already told you where to find it. You should be able to get there. And we're going to read the first four verses. First four verses of the book of, little letter of Jude. We call it a book. It's actually a letter. Here we go. It's up on your screen if you don't have a Bible. If you want a Bible or you don't have an app, please ask us and we will get you one. All right, so verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your glory and majesty. Lord, let us honor you this morning by proclaiming the truths that you have preserved for us. May we have ears to hear and alert minds to receive all that you have for us this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. So as we come to this text, excuse me, we see that Jude wants to do something important. First, he's writing to his fellow believers. He says, to those who are called, we are called by the Holy Spirit to receive the gift of faith that God offers. So keep that in mind that this is the church that he is writing to. 
And he reminds them immediately in verse 1 that they are not only called, but they are beloved in God, God the Father specifically, and kept for or by Jesus Christ. So look at these three things that identify Jude's audience. They are called, they are beloved, and they are kept. These are all wonderful blessings that are given by God. They're initiated by God, and they are planned by God before the foundations of the earth, as we find out in Ephesians. The all-powerful creator God, who made all things seen and unseen, who alone puts the stars into motion, spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. He's intimately involved in all of his creation. He's perfect, was 100% trustworthy because he is without sin. This is the one who promises his love for us and his unending preservation of us. If there is a way to instill hope and confidence in someone, it's to tell them that they are loved and protected, right? Now, tell them they're loved and protected by the most powerful entity there ever was or ever will be, the one who created and sustains all things, the one who says he guards us. He guards us. How's that for a security detail? He guards us. So in laying this out, Jude is actually setting the stage for what comes next, because what comes next is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to put their spiritual comfort to the test, as it were. And this is why Jude begins his letter by reminding them of this confidence, this absolute assurance they have. And we have that, too. As believers, we understand that God has called us to himself. We understand that God keeps us. He loves us. He holds us dear. He protects us for eternity. He protects our souls. The souls are the real us looking out these little windows. And this, this is the opening theme of the book of Jude. And this opening theme of protecting and keeping us is the same theme that Jude ends with. He concludes his letter with this as well. We skip down to verse 24, and look what he says. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What a marvelous promise and a guarantee. Jude reminds them at the start that God keeps us, and he reminds them at the finish that God keeps us from stumbling. And God presents us blameless when we stand in his presence. And God has great joy to receive us and, and actually see us as blameless. Why? Because he has dealt with our sin already. We are not worthy of this. But he delights in us anyway. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. One little aside, as we go back to the beginning there, this is a, a Trinitarian verse in verse 1. I'd like to point this out. The Trinity is expressed there. Did you pick up on it? It says, to those who are called, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Some translations have it by Jesus Christ. Spirit, Father, Son, the triune God. This is the fullness of God on display. And it's yet another confidence booster that Jude gives his readers in the church. And then verse 2 says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So for those who are called, beloved, and kept by God, already a pretty good deal. Mercy, peace, and love will be multiplied. These precious gifts of His are not just available to us, not just given to us one time, just in measly, in measly portions, just doled out a little bit. They're multiplied, not just added. Multiplied, meaning abounding, overflowing, growing. God is not stingy. He loves to lavish us with goodness for those who he has called, for those who are his. He lavishes us with this. We're completely unworthy. So, with all that as a backdrop, we come now to what I would call the meat of the message. And really, it's the explanation for the entire letter. It's verses 3 and 4. Let's look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, and I want to stop there for a second. Just imagine Jude sitting down, quill in hand, ink at the ready, and he wants to write a really positive message. He, he, he plans to commend the believers for, uh, for repenting of their sin, trusting in Jesus as the sacrifice to pay their penalty, trusting in his resurrection and the ascended Jesus to grant them the gift of everlasting new life. And when the text says, text says common salvation, that doesn't mean it's something ordinary or just kind of mundane. No, it means it's a shared blessing that they all share in. It's, it's, it's common among them, just like with us. We share in the blessing of salvation. That doesn't mean it's a mundane thing. It's an incredible, extraordinary thing. But so the meaning there is just a, it's a shared blessing among them. So we come there. Jude is very eager to write this letter about their salvation. There's, there's an enthusiasm there. there. There's a zeal he has to give this message. The, the original language there indicates speed or a hastening, like he can't wait to get at this. But apparently the Holy Spirit was not the impetus for his zeal, for God changes Jude's mind. Jude thus says in the rest of verse 3 that he found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The Holy Spirit comes in and puts Jude's plan on hold so that Jude can do the work that he, he wants him to. And Jude obeys. So this very salvation that Jude is really eager to write about, that he has in mind to praise, he now has a duty to protect. And this is very similar. We see some similar language to what Paul says when he is writing to the Corinthian believers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For necessity is laid upon me, 
Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to him if he does not preach the gospel. So Jude knows that if the true gospel is lost, salvation is lost. People will be lost. They won't know the truth. This is why Jude says it's necessary, necessary for him to write a different letter than he wanted to write. He and Paul and all of us who trust in God's only, only offer of wonderful salvation, we must not let the gospel be lost. We must protect it dearly. Protect it from what or whom, you might ask? Good question. Jude answers this very clearly in verse 4. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These are false teachers. These are the ones who distort the gospel for their own gain. And the dangerous thing, the most dangerous, that's dangerous enough, the most dangerous thing is that they creep in unnoticed. Jude says that. Peter says the same thing. He says in 2 Peter that false prophets secretly bring in destructive heresies. So we have them creeping in unnoticed, secretly bringing in destructive heresies. These aren't men and women who put on horns on their heads and beat drums and, and lead satanic rituals in some weird cult. That would be pretty easy to notice. That would be very apparent. The ones Jude and Peter are talking about, and earlier Jesus, the same thing, they're talking about those actually on the inside of the church. Jesus says in Matthew 24, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. He is actually saying with that statement, he's talking about the last days before his second coming. Basically our age today. He says false prophets will arise and lead many astray. In Acts 20, Paul says fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul's talking about those joining the church who are, who are, or who all already are in the church. And Jesus, he calls them fierce wolves. Jesus used the same description in his Sermon on the Mount. He calls false prophets ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves inside the church who appear fine outwardly, but inwardly they are destructive. Again, these are people who at first appear to be believers. However, these wolves are marked by their distortion of the true gospel. They, they take the holy scriptures and they knowingly, purposely twist them to suit their own selfish motive. They may want glory for themselves. They puff themselves up. They may want a measure of fame. They may want to be enriched financially. The bottom line is they pervert this beautiful gospel of God's mercy and grace to something that actually leads people astray. And ultimately they deny Jesus as Lord and they make it ultimately about themselves. And I would say, you look at Peter, Peter is very blunt. <laughs> 
uh, in his second letter to the church, he calls the false teachers various things. He calls them irrational animals. That's, that's <laughs> he's not mincing words. They are blots and blemishes. They revel in their deceptions, he says. They are insatiable for sin, and they entice unsteady souls. Peter's not done yet. He calls them waterless springs. He says, these teachers of a false gospel are waterless springs who have hearts trained in greed. For them, Peter concludes, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So this is why Jude goes to great lengths to remind believers to be aware of these false teachers. In verse 17, he says, you must remember, you must remember that there will be false teachers. And then he exhorts them about the predictions of Paul and Peter and the other apostles. You'll see on the screen up there, in Jude 18 and 19, Jude says, they said to you, referring to, to the apostles, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So we are warned. We have ample warning. We should not be surprised. And I'll give you an example in our day. Um, aside from Jehovah's Witnesses or, or the Mormon Church, today we see a rampant teaching uh, that if we just accept Jesus into our hearts, life will be better. Things will start going in my favor. Kind of the rough edges of life are going to be smoothed out. God's going to take away all, all, all difficulties, right? I'm going to live my best life now. And it's really attractive teaching because it sounds nice. It sounds very nice. To me, it's kind of embodied in the way uh, people distort Philippians 4.13. It's a a common verse. Most of you know it. I can do all things through who strengthens me. Yeah. In other words, with Jesus, if I put on Jesus, hey, I can get that job. I can run that marathon. I can make that sales goal. I can meet the right person. I can get ahead. People are going to like me. I'll be more popular. Maybe I'll even be more attractive. I can buy that house, so on and so forth. This is a false teaching because even this verse is not given for that. It's given to, to encourage us to endure hardship. It's not to uh, achieve worldly greatness. That's a distortion. Salvation from our sins is not accepting Jesus. It's just not true. Scripture says no such thing. And yet our churches are filled with this teaching. We don't accept Jesus. We're darn lucky Jesus accepts us. By his power, we are snatched away from the flames of hell for eternity. And he keeps us from going there. Only him keeps us from going there. We don't come to Christ to enhance our worldly life, improve our status, do you think the apostles' lives became very rosy when they stood up for, for Christ? 
They didn't. When they proclaimed Christ as Messiah, guess what? They were imprisoned. They were tortured, put to death, as have been thousands upon thousands of believers since then. Teaching that we get a wonderful life on earth with Jesus is a destructive heresy. We don't come to him to have it easy in this life or for a smooth flight through life. We come to him because in our sin, it's like we're standing on the edge of a plane at 10,000 feet and we have to jump. And God offers us a parachute for a safe landing. Thank you for that reference to Ray Comfort. But we come to Christ when we understand that we are morally bankrupt in the eyes of a holy God and we have to face him on judgment day. We come to him when we finally understand that there is nothing that I offer except a lifetime of sin, that my meager efforts, that our meager efforts to do something good enough to earn salvation by good works falls woefully short, way short. No, we come to Christ to receive his forgiveness for our sins and the promise of everlasting life, not for self-improvement in this world. I would say, if this is the best life now, what do you have to look forward to? We come to Christ because he saves us. His work saves us from, from God. The true gospel is this, and it's up on your screen. We are saved from the wrath of God by the work of Jesus Christ alone. We are saved from the wrath of God by Jesus Christ alone. This is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints that Jude mentions in verse 4, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we are to protect this faith. We're to guard this body. It's a, a body of doctrine and truths. It's actually not our effort to have faith. It, it's the body of teaching, the body of doctrine, the body of truths that's been handed down from the beginning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he declares the straightforward gospel truth. So this doctrine, this faith has been pres uh, preserved in scripture from the early church fathers to now. And these truths don't change. They were written down by men inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are God's words once for all established and delivered generation to generation. And the truth is unchangeable. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will, never, will not pass away, says in Matthew 24. And just like these truths are formed and, and established from the start of humanity, so is the opposition. So is the opposition at every turn. In Adam's day, Abraham's day, Noah's day, Moses' day, David's day, in Jesus' day, Paul's day, the early church fathers' day, Martin Luther's day, all the way 500 years forward to today, wolves infiltrate the church. And they come in sheep's clothing. They look and they sound nice on the outside, so it's pretty subtle. 
And they may preach a kernel of the truth, and that's what, what can be dangerous. There's a kernel of truth in there, just enough so you'll think to yourself, ah, oh, I can trust this because he's teaching from the Bible. But be careful when they layer on other truths from outside Scripture, outside of God's teaching. It sounds appealing. It's very subtle. But do not be deceived. My brothers and sisters, those who do this do Satan's bidding. They are here to steal and kill and destroy. That's what Satan does. And so this is why Jude, just like Paul, he calls people into battle. He says in verse 3, he is appealing to you to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. This is a dire necessity. Again, not even Jude's zeal to write about their common salvation is as strong as his urgent need to fight off attackers of the truth. Because the gospel, like it always has been, the gospel is under attack. It's always been under attack. It always will be. So keep in mind that there is no salvation for us to praise if the gospel is lost. So Jude knows this. So he, he makes a trumpet blast. He pulls a fire alarm, sounds the siren, however you want to put it. It's almost like he's saying, emergency, emergency, report now. Get ready, people. This is not a rehearsal. It's the real thing. Put on your, your armor. Your spiritual armor, report to the front lines. Be ready. Stand firm. Okay, let's go. Where's my spiritual armor? Well, we know we have a spiritual armor, don't we? We even know where it is. It's in Ephesians 6, and it's solid. And you know what it consists of? It's cool. God tells us what it consists of. It consists of the truth. Righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. These six things given by God, they form a complete suit of spiritual armor, as it were. And they do it from head to toe, the symbolism there. He likens them to a helmet, a breastplate, a belt, a sword, a shield, all the way down to shoes. From head to toe, this is our spiritual armor. And why do we have this armor? Ephesians tells us, actually, is to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is how we arm ourselves. This is how we know the false teachers and how we can contend for the gospel. Because among those schemes of the devil... One of the most effective schemes is what? It's infiltrating the church with false teachers. We know a house divided against itself will not stand, right? Well, what better way for Satan to divide the house than to go right inside and spread falsehoods, a false gospel? Kind of get the followers of Christ to disagree a little bit, just a little bit. Maybe a little bit at first, and then that little spark starts to grow as more people rush in to take sides on all sides, and it grows, and people are taking sides until the damage consumes the entire congregation. And what's left 
is a smoldering wreckage, ineffective to share the gospel with non-believers who want no part of this divisiveness. It's a very effective strategy. And we cannot let this happen. Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice Jude's language in verse 3. It's important what he says. And this is where I'm going to close today. When Jude calls us to contend for the faith, the word contend is from the Greek word, I knew I was going to butcher this, epagonismi, epagonismi. It's where we get our English word to agonize. Paul uses the same verb when he's uh, writing to, in 2 Timothy when he writes, I have fought the good fight. And then when he tells Timothy to do the same thing, fight the good fight of faith, is the word epagonismi. It depicts the struggle in the world of people trying to live for the truth of God in a hostile culture. And the Greek word, it's also pulled from the language of athletic competition. I want you to think of like a wrestling match, an individual wrestling match. In a, in a wrestling match, if you give in for even a second, you're going to get pinned. Boom. You've got to maintain that tension. You've got to maintain the pressure. Keep it on constantly because your opponent is pushing constantly. So you must hold firm. And not only must you push back in order to win, you must make a move at some point. Well, Jude calls us to contend for the faith. He calls us to wrestle, to agonize. And our move to win is to know the truth. That's our move. By God's grace, he's enabled us to know the truth. So Jude calls us to contend for the faith. But how do you contend for something unless you know it? How do you contend for the faith if you don't know the faith that Jude is talking about. How do you know, actually know the faith? How do you know what it is unless you read, study, pray, and understand it? And how do we know what true, the true Christian faith is apart from the Bible? The Bible is such a beautiful, majestic thing that we must be in it to know it. It's awesome. You could hold it out and say, oh, I love the Bible. Do you read it? Oh, no. <laughs> I just like what it's about. No, we must be in it to know it. We must be in the Bible to know Jesus Christ, to know who he is, to know the faith that he purchased for us and gifted to us to be set free from the, the law of sin and death. This is where the counterfeit is, the false gospel. We all know that you cannot, you cannot recognize a counterfeit unless you know the real thing so thoroughly that the fake jumps out and you, without a doubt, that's not the real thing, right? There is no question. We understand that. John MacArthur, he says, the only way that you're going to be able to defend yourself against this apostasy or, or false teaching is to know the word so well that you can recognize the apostasy. Absolutely fundamental for us to do that. My brothers and sisters, we have no excuse for having a shallow knowledge 
of the Christian faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In this country, we have Bibles at our disposal endlessly everywhere. You have thousands of apps on your phone that, that we can access biblical truth from pretty much whenever and wherever we want. So the Bible is easy to obtain. And like I said earlier, we'll give you one if you are missing, if, if you don't have one. But most importantly, we have a gracious God who opens our eyes to the truth of his word. So it's one thing to have the truth of scripture. We need God to open our eyes. He literally, he literally makes us understand it. I mean, before we were Christians, the truth was veiled to us. It was not clear. Even if we read scripture, I was one of those. I, I, I would read scripture occasionally, and okay, fine. After I received Christ, it was a completely different text, completely different. He illuminated. But when he calls us to himself, and when we truly repent and receive his gift of everlasting life, he not only gives us that gift, he removes the barrier that, that prevents us from understanding his truth. And he opens our minds to know him. We see this in 2 Timothy 2.7 when the Apostle Paul is exhorting Timothy, his protege. Paul tells him, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Notice, Timothy must take action. He must listen and think over what he hears and reads, and then God gives him understanding. This, the believer's effort, our effort, and God's empowering work together. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and He has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. So we have a role here. We must take action. We can't just be passive. But then it's God's work to open our understanding. So therefore, first, Make sure you have a Bible. That's first, first thing we need to do. And one with a good trans, uh, uh, a translation, uh, good translation, we recommend the ESV or the NASB uh, or the Legacy Bible. These are all good translations. So first, make sure you have a Bible. Second, read it. Read it. It sounds elementary to say read your Bible. But the discipline of reading your Bible every day is a discipline that you must develop. We know distractions are many. We may think we don't have time amid the, the raising of children or working of jobs and maintaining our homes, fixing our cars, dealing with finances, et cetera, et cetera. But believe it or not, these things, they're secondary. They're actually secondary. They should come after spending time with the Lord in prayer and reading his word. Do you remember Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? If you don't, I'm going to tell you. He tells the disciples, Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For Gentile, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But do what? Seek first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. We have no problem carving out times for ourselves, do we not? I would say add up all the hours that we spend watching TV, uh, being engaged on social media, entertaining ourselves, gaming, so on and so forth. And just think about whether this has eternal value. When you're engaged in that, is this more important than knowing the truths of God and of your Savior? I want you to ask yourself, does this honor my Lord? Does this honor the Lord? If he were with me right now, would he be honored? David says in Psalm 119, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. David saw the futility of looking at worthless things. We spend so much time on these things that, that have no eternal value. I'm as guilty as everybody else. And yet we know they're only satisfying for a few seconds, right? Very fleeting. Far better for us to prioritize the things that have eternal value, that honor the one who gives us life and breath. These are much more satisfying anyway. And how long do they last? They last forever. Let's be about that. So first, make sure you have a Bible. Second, read it. Third, here's the plug. Take advantage of clear teaching of the, biblical, the true biblical gospel. We're fortunate here at Orange Villa Bible Church to have very gifted teachers and preachers. Pastor Rob and Landon, they do a, just an incredible job of bringing us truths week after week after week, straight from Scripture, and making it easy for us to understand. That's a gift. That is not something that's easy to find. Uh, we are very fortunate. Um, so come, hear the message every Sunday morning. Hear the message. Listen. Take notes. Reflect on it. Revisit the scriptures that scripture references used during the message. Write them down. I encourage you to take notes in your tablet, on a piece of paper, whatever you're going to do. They're sweet, sweet gifts presented to us every week. Receive them. Receive them. Be grateful that, that we can receive these. Come to adult core class before the service. Here's where we teach on various aspects of scripture. Uh, themes that will help us uh, live in, in a world hostile to it. it. We've gone through how the Bible has come to be. We've gone through the history of church fathers and how that informs us today. We're, we're going through now, uh, as Rob announced earlier, uh, a series on uh, the new birth, what it means to be born again. And we, we tackle it. It's a great time to learn and ask questions and have dialogue. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, they, I have received so much benefit from the adult core class. I can't recommend it highly enough. So 945. And then come to our midweek small group gathering. This is a time when we have a, a, a short message, a, a short teaching. Again, we're into the things of Scripture. And... We'll have some discussion, and then we engage with each other and pray with each other. It's a very good time. Uh, again, it's an, another wonderful, easy way to grow uh, in your understanding of God's Word. So 
avail yourself of these things. Come to the service, come to the adult core class, come, to, come there. And then if you have anything that's on your mind, a, a question, or you want to discuss any, anything pertaining to the things of God or scripture, seek us out at any time during the week or on the weekend. Seek out Pastor Rob or Landon or I, and, uh, and let's have that. Don't be, don't be hesitant to do that. We would love to uh, take that on and, and, and grow in our, in our understanding, help each other to, to do that. So, so to finish, we have heard this morning that God promises that he has won the fight. He has won the fight over sin and, and death and that we must fight for it. And so I'm going to give you an easy acronym to remember, help you remember. G-O-D. That was a tough one to come up with, by the way. Really tough. All right, so the G stands for guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Do not give a foothold to false teachers. Don't give them any place. Guard the gospel. O, own the truth. Know the true gospel message as it's clearly given in Scripture. So G, guard the gospel. O, own the truth. D, deliver the faith. Pass on to those around you. Pass on to those in the next generation what we have received and what we have a duty to protect. We do not want to lose the gospel. We cannot lose the gospel. So G-O-D, guard the gospel, own the truth, deliver the faith. May this motivate you to earnestly contend for the faith that is entrusted to us as Jude has encouraged us in his mighty letter to the, to the church. And I will leave you with this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter acknowledges that some scripture may be difficult to fully grasp. And he also knows that these passages are often twisted by false teachers with impure motives. So Peter tells the early Christians, knowing this beforehand, again, knowing that there will be false teachers and they'll twist the scriptures, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to ask Pastor Rob to come up and close us in prayer. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.